Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Take your Bible this morning and open them to the letter of Philippians. Open it, not them. You may, if you have more than one, you can open both of them to Philippians. The letter of Philippians. We're in a series entitled Gospel Advance. The Christian Perspective for Glory is what we're going to look at today. Our series title is actually Joy. I just gave you the sermon title. I confuse myself this way. I want us to look today, though, at Gospel Advance, the Christian Perspective for Glory. And I want to start with a question that simply causes you to think about your own life for just a moment. And here's the question. What is shaping your perspective of everything that you see in the world? What is shaping your perspective of everything that you see in the world? I had my perspective challenged recently. We ate at a restaurant and, and I wanted pizza. They, they touted craft pizza. And I thought, ah, that sounds good. That's what I want. But there was one little problem. They only served it on cauliflower crust. And friends, let me be certain about this. There is no such thing. It's like cold coffee. It just shouldn't be. Oh, some of you didn't laugh at that one. I found it. Yes, we'll come back to that another week. Here's the news flash. Cauliflower is not pizza crust. Thank you. Oh, man, but I ordered it anyway. The waitress guaranteed me if I didn't like it, she would refund my money or fix me something else at no extra charge. And I'm here to tell you today, it was horrible. It was horrible. Not the pizza crust. That was awesome. I ate every bit of it. I mean, every last bit of it. What was horrible is my perspective. And, and the whole idea that cauliflower should be pizza crust. That's horrible. Don't tell me next time. Just serve it. You know what I'm saying? I've gone back twice just to confirm my perspective. <laughs> Had the same pizza. It was great. It really was. A Jesus-centered perspective on all of life is essential. It's essential for the Christian to serve and to advance the gospel with joy through their life. And I want to talk to you about this perspective today because there are threats that abound against us that want to take it away from us. So let's go to Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 12 through 18 as we begin. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, 
not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. You know, we've looked at the last two weeks, kind of the historical trajectory of what's taking place from Acts chapter 16. And after Paul and Silas were released from prison and in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, they were asked to leave the town. But Paul actually said, we will not leave until you bring the local authorities down and they apologize for beating us before you put us in prison because I'm a Roman citizen. Now, when that Roman citizenship card gets played, serious business gets laid down on the table. There's, there's no other way to think about it because in Roman rule, Roman law was built upon the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and they would kill you to keep the peace. You get what I'm striking at there. And so for them to have beaten unjustly a Roman citizen would not only cost them their job, but potentially cost them their life. And so they came down, the, the local authorities, and they apologized, and they acted so contrite because they didn't want him to tell on them. And then they asked him to leave town. And so Paul and Silas leave from there, and they come to the next city, Acts chapter 17, and, and, and the leaders there exact a bribe from them in order to allow them to preach. But in the preaching, riots break out. Here we have this same theme reappearing. Acts chapter 18, Paul goes to Corinth where the mob ends up beating a man in front of the local authority, and he didn't even flinch. He asked for another round of soda and snack to watch the entertainment. Acts chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus where the Jews are rejecting him, but again, it ends in another riot. You see, riots were one of the worst offenses against Roman law because they directly opposed the promise of the Roman government of Pax Romana. So there was a sect of Jews that were assigned and they would follow Paul around and they would create turmoil within the crowds and stir up riots and mobs because they knew if they did that, the Roman government would shut Paul and them down. And that was their strategy. By Acts chapter 21, a couple of years later, Paul has returned to Jerusalem. He is arrested in Jerusalem due to rioting and mob violence. And the Jewish leaders are plotting to kill him. The Roman guards are trying to figure out how to keep him safe until they can get him back to appear before Caesar because every Roman citizen had the right to a just trial to appear before Caesar if they claimed their citizenship against what they thought was an injustice. And if the Roman army couldn't keep them safe, it would likely cost them their own life. Listen to this. In transferring him from Jerusalem back to Rome, they assigned 200 foot soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. 470 Roman soldiers were assigned to keep one man safe. What does that tell us? That tells us there was a significant threat against this man's life. And Paul didn't try to stop the unjust treatment. As a matter of fact, 
in some ways, he was not afraid of it because he knew where it was leading him. God told him in a dream that he would appear before Caesar. And so it was Paul's aim to preach the gospel to Caesar. He was using his citizenship to serve and to advance the gospel. He was on a mission to preach the gospel to Caesar. So once he gets back to Rome, he's kept there under house arrest. And that's where he writes this letter back to the church at Philippi, some 10 or 12 years after the church was planted. And in the midst of all the insurrection, all the mob violence, all the riots, the unjust beatings and and jailings, what does Paul say about this? But he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Have you lost your mind? Have you missed everything that's taken place? No. Neither of those are true. Paul is focused. You see, everything that happened to Paul confirmed his work in the gospel instead of contradicting it. Because Paul stayed focused on obeying God and advancing the gospel. He saw the many ways that God was working and how the gospel was taking hold in people all along the way. I mean, even consider from the very books of the Bible that we now study, those are churches that were planted in the cities that Paul was traveling through and preaching the gospel. And he would enter a city, he would preach the gospel, people would be converted, become followers of the way or Christians as we call them today, a church would get planted, the violence would erupt, and they would push Paul on, but the church remained. And Paul said, I see how God is working. It's not about me, it's about him. It's not about how bad my situation is, it's about how powerful the gospel is in any situation. That's why he said, I want you to know in every place my situation and circumstances are being used to advance the gospel. It was taking hold of people all along the way. And Paul was not going to allow anything to threaten it or to stop the work. Friends, let me tell you this. Every person's perspective of life will be shaped in one of only two ways. One of only two ways. Number one, either everything in and about and around your life will be shaped by your understanding of God. Or, number two, everything in your life will shape your view of God. I'm going to repeat that because there's not a third option. Everything in, about, and around your life will either be shaped by your view and your understanding of God, who he is, his nature, his character, his work, and all that the Bible teaches about him, or everything in your life will shape your view about God. What you allow to shape your perspective of all things, of all things, will determine the source from which you draw your own joy and your own strength for living. Why? Because that's what centers your life. You see, joy from God strengthens us to endure when Jesus centers our perspective of all of life and we see all of our life lived for his 
glory. That's what Paul is teaching us here. What I want you to walk away with today is this. Christ followers hold a Jesus-centered perspective on all of life so their whole life can serve to advance the gospel. Christ followers hold a Jesus-centered perspective on all of life so their whole life can serve to advance the gospel. But holding this perspective is not easy. There are countless attacks that threaten to steal our focus on Jesus. And here we see today in this passage three of the biggest threats to gospel advance in your life. Three of the biggest threats to the gospel advancement in your life. Threat number one is in verses 12 through 14, and it is this. Circumstances that are not surrendered to God. Circumstances that are not surrendered to God. Paul certainly had every opportunity to let his circumstances distract and convince him that enough was enough, right? I mean, somewhere along the way, just in Acts chapter 16 to 21, if Paul had said, you know what, isn't this enough, God? Haven't I suffered enough for you? Enough is enough. I'm out. Most people would read that and go, man, I can't blame the brother. It's been bad. It's been hard. He's hurt a lot. He served his time. We'll let him get out. But that's not the way Paul spoke of it. Instead, Paul testified, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, we need to understand, Paul's not denying the difficulty of it here. He's not denying the difficulty of the hardship, of the pain. He's not saying he was never frustrated by anything that he endured. Surely he was, countless times. But instead of being consumed by it, he testified that in it and through it all, God was working. And that's what led him to continue to remain faithful and to see the gospel advance through his life. Now, friends, these are not hollow spiritual claims. How do we know that? Because people who live a hollow shell of Christianity do not endure suffering. They check out as soon as it begins. As a matter of fact, people who only claim the things of Christianity will not even enter. So a threat against them is typically enough to reveal the hollowness of their faith and they're out. But when someone's life is centered on Jesus Christ and is fueled by the gospel, there's not a threat that will stop them. They will continue and the the persecution will be endured because of the power that comes to them. So instead of it just being a hyper-spiritual claim, we learn that this is the testimony that everyone was hearing. That's what Paul says, that his persecution was for the sake of the gospel. You see, a life that is centered on Jesus stays focused on his commission and doesn't get stopped by our circumstances. It doesn't mean that we're never aware of our circumstances. It doesn't mean that we're never hindered or even struggle with them. But rather that in every situation, we look to the Lord and we surrender our lives to him in every way. As a matter of fact, this will become the central theme of the book of Philippians for joy to fill our life. When we get to chapter 2, Paul will exalt the Christ himself and say that he humbled himself and obeyed the Father to become a man. And as a man, he humbled himself and obeyed the Father even to the point of death. 
Humility and obedience are the path where the gospel empowers us to advance the sake of Christ and testify faithfully to his name. But listen to me, friends. The way we understand our life and our circumstances reveals what it is that we're trusting for our life. And circumstances can become so easy to get focused on, can they not? Not only focused on, but sidelined by, distracted or consumed with. Consumed with. And, and, and when we do that, it shows us what it is that we're looking for hope in in life. That, that if better circumstances came, life would be better. As a matter of fact, that's, that's become what I would argue one of the most distracting and deterring factors for American Christianity. We've had it so good, we didn't need the gospel. Affluence has allowed us to buy our way out of the need to repent, to turn from our own wicked way. Wicked way? What? I'm not saying everyone that's affluent is this way. I'm just telling you in general, we've enjoyed such a freedom that any threat against our own well-being and our perspective has caused us to go, wait a minute, somebody did something wrong. Couldn't have been me. It must have been someone else. I better get a new friend. Hebrews 12, 2 reminds us, Jesus responded to his worst circumstances by what he stayed focused on. Jesus, who for the joy that was before him, endured cross what was the joy before Jesus that gave him the strength to endure the cross the will of the father what is the joy set before us that gives us the strength to endure in any situation or circumstance the sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ and his resurrection that gives us a hope that is eternal never fading never spoiling listen to me I'm going to say something that's going to be very difficult for some of you to receive. And I'm not saying it to be argumentative. I'm, I'm really presuming upon it to move forward through this. But, and I don't say it lightly either. All suffering is ordained by God. All suffering is ordained by God. Why? Because none of it... By God's own promise in Romans 8.28 will be wasted by him. He brings glory and he brings good from it all. You see, sometimes God uses suffering to identify an area of life or an area of our heart that's not fully surrendered to him. And at other times, he uses suffering to show us that his power is in fact sufficient. But regardless of how God chooses to use suffering and regardless of how he chooses to work in the midst of it, here's what we learn about God. He is always faithful when we focus on him. You know, a couple of, well, back in the summer at some point, Kristen and I were in a restaurant and I saw a sign on the wall that said, life is tough. Life is tougher when you're stupid. You know, I mean, I like that. I mean, that's not biblical at all, but I, I like it. It's reality, you know. It's, it's, uh, it's not like a Bible verse, I mean, you know, but man, it's a, you can just watch it. You see stupid all day, every day, and sometimes you are it, right? I mean, I, if we're just going to get honest with one another, right? 
And so I posted it on social media. Oh, man. You can always tell what people like because they're all about it, right? Here's the good thing about life being tough. God's always faithful. Here's the thing about life being tougher when we're stupid. God is still faithful. Let, let me be pejorative just a little bit here, friends. I, I say this out of love for us and, and just a little bit of lightheartedness, but dead seriousness. In the depths of our stupidity, God is still sufficiently faithful. You see that? God doesn't scoff at our stupidity and go, you're not going to do that again, are you? Now, he may teach us that lesson, but he's still faithful to us. And that's what we're learning here. It's okay to struggle in your circumstances. It's okay to not like them. You can't convince me Paul liked his circumstances. He didn't like every guard that he got chained to or every fellow prisoner that was legitimately imprisoned that he got chained to. He didn't enjoy his circumstances, some kind of darkness of the mind that caused him to, to love his subhuman circumstances that he found himself in. Or every time he got beat with a whip because he was getting unjustly whipped, he goes, thank you, can I have another? I mean, hey, there wasn't some kind of sadistic mentality that he held that helped him to get here no he didn't enjoy it he didn't long for it but he saw the good that God was bringing through it he just didn't get consumed by it it's okay to struggle it's okay to not like it's okay to not enjoy your circumstances and, and God tells us to talk to him about it that's why he says later in this very book cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you And none of these things mean that you're focused on your circumstances. But what, how do we know we're getting consumed by and focused on our circumstances? Here's how we know. We allow them to cause us to begin to speculate about God. I don't think God sees me. I don't think God really knows. And then we question God. Does, does God really care about me? I mean, if he saw what I'm in the midst of, how could he let me remain here? And ultimately, our speculation and our question creates doubts that seed blossoms into full disbelief. That's how we know we're focusing and becoming consumed by our circumstances. Friends, we only know the faithfulness and the joy of the Lord when we surrender our circumstances to Him. What does that mean? It means it says, God, these are as bad as I could imagine them being and I don't even want to fathom what worse could come or be. But I will not allow them to deter me from what I know to be true of you. And we rest our heart and our mind and our life before God to work in us by the gospel and God, if, if ruining me is your plan, may the glory of Jesus Christ be made known because of it. However you want to use me, use me. That, that's what Paul says is a living sacrifice in Romans 12 too. Let me ask you this. When was the, when was the last time you looked and considered how the gospel was advancing through your life? Good circumstances, bad circumstances, either one, or somewhere in between. You see, we tend to only think of what our circumstances are doing to me 
God, have you seen what these circumstances are doing? Instead of what Paul tells us to look at, look at how God is using these circumstances to advance the gospel. I I say these things today knowing full well that many, if not most, if not all of you, are under severe circumstances, threats, you might say, against your livelihood, against your well-being, against many different aspects of your life. And my question to you is, are you only looking at what they may do to you? Or are you asking God, show me, Lord, how you can use my life in the midst of this to advance the gospel? Paul's circumstances had a distinct effect. It tells us that it became widely known that his imprisonment was for Christ. How did people know this? Because Paul told them this. No, no, no. I'm, not, I'm, I'm innocent. And they're all like, oh yeah, he's innocent too. Every, they, the, the joke that I've heard is that I've never been in jail. So there, you know that about me now. But it's my understanding everybody in jail and prison is innocent. But when Paul said, I'm not just innocent, I'm actually guilty. I preached the gospel and they threw me in jail for it because my life's being used to advance the gospel. That's how they knew. And and it was affecting not just other people, but it was affecting other believers. And and not even in the way you might think. They're going, oh no, Paul got thrown in jail because they found out he was a Christian. If they find out I'm a Christian, they might throw me in jail too. We better run. Paul says, no, it was actually having quite the opposite effect of that. He says this, that the brothers had become more confident in the Lord because of his imprisonment. And not just the brothers in general, the the Christians on the outliers that that had heard and, and, and seen and been converted, but those who were walking with him like, Timothy and Titus and Silas, those who were alongside Paul when he was arrested and thrown into prison were actually seeing their boldness grow to speak the word of God without fear. There was a courage that was coming to them that was not from them, but it was definitely in them because it was coming through them. You see, when we focus on gospel advance, we begin to look to Jesus for how it is that he is shaping us inside, but also how he is impacting others through our circumstances. And the principal way that people see that is by hearing it from our own lips. That's what Paul teaches us here. Now, these next two threats that we look at may not be as obvious, but they're no less dangerous. Go with me to verse 15. And look at what he says there. He identifies both of them. He says this, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from good will. Two threats. Let's look at the second one first because there were plenty who opposed Paul and people were claiming to be on the same team as Paul, but some didn't like him because they were jealous of his gifts. They were jealous of his ability. They were jealous of his boldness. They were envious of his success. And others just didn't like him because they saw him as competition. But Paul says that both of these are fueled by selfish ambition. That's what he goes on to say in verse um, uh, 17. And they reveled in his hardship because they thought in some way that helped them. Here's the second threat I want you to see. Threat number two is competition in what you do for God. 
competition in what you do for God. You see, some people wanted to compete with Paul for no other reason other than selfish ambition. And these are the people who were supposed to be on the same team. Things go really bad when people on the same team compete against each other, right? I mean, in the simplest of competition, we understand that, do we not? And that's what Paul's talking about here. They claim to do the same work, but their focus was less on the work and more on how bad Paul's circumstances could become. Every sermon they preached was to make them look better and to make Paul look worse. And every encounter that they had was simply to build themselves up by tearing him down. Isn't it interesting how often we can think that it elevates us when we break somebody else down? And just simply by them going lower, it makes us feel higher. No limit or amount is ever enough for these people, Paul said. The, the, the worse his circumstances became, the better they considered their success to be. They were so focused on self that seeing Paul destroyed was far more of a priority than seeing people converted or the gospel advanced. And Paul said it was because of selfish ambition. Self-ambition caused them to measure their success by celebrating Paul's suffering. Man, doesn't that make you just want to go, what kind of sordid, dark, demented mind did these people have? But wait a minute, don't say that yet. Why? We so easily get distracted by the same threat when we lose focus on Jesus and lose focus on serving his gospel. And I know you might say, but I'm not a preacher. How could this affect me? Well, here's how. It's no different for every Christian. You feel threatened. You feel insecure about some role in life, some accomplishment or some situation. So you measure yourself against someone that you see as much better than you. See, this is how it becomes all too familiar and personal. And every time they stumble or fall or even have a struggle, you, you feel just a tinge of celebration in your own heart. And the area of life on which this centers in you can be used to identify what it is that's most desired by you or, or if you flip the coin over, where it is that you're most insecure in your life. Let me give a couple of illustrations. These are only two, definitely not cumulative, but they are two. Take a young mom who's envious of other young mothers because she perceives them as better than herself. Why? because of what she's built up in her mind about them, or in our day and time, because of the perfect reality they've posted on social media. Like, like the whole social media depression that, that, that psychology today is identifying is, is this threat of competition. That's all it is, friends. And it's not just about young moms. It's about every stage and age of life. It's not just affecting young adults. It's affecting anyone who's actually on social media or who's hearing about it. It's being fueled by that. And, and, and it could be a person uh, uh, who enjoys it when a coworker makes a mistake because they feel threatened by that coworker. And man, when that coworker makes a mistake, it's like they get pulled out of the way a little bit and the lane to success and advancement is just a little clearer. You feel that little bit of celebration in the heart. You're competing, friend. You're competing. This pattern gets repeated in any aspect of life. 
where, where you feel insecure, where you feel insignificant or you feel insufficient. It might be in looks and appearance. It might be in smarts and intellect. It might be in ability or gifts or possessions or position, whatever it might be. And the problem is not how good they are. The problem is not even how bad you are, but rather the problem is where you perceive yourself in regards to how it is you see them. I don't know if you heard what I just said. The problem is in your mind. It's in your perception. And the issue is simply this, that your identity and your significance are not surrendered to Jesus, but you're trying to build and make something of them. And the person you compete with in your heart is not the issue. It's only the, they're only the object of your envy and your jealousy. If they go away, you will quickly find someone else to attach your target to. And this pattern repeats itself over and over because your heart is set on selfish ambition and consumed by some unmet need, some ill-formed desire, or some ill-conceived imperfection in you. And listen to me, you do not have to make any improvement in order to advance. As a matter of fact, it is so deceiving, it's actually better when other people stumble, fail, or suffer. You enjoy it more. A little bit of advancement, you're able to excuse that. Oh, it's not really that great. It's not that far. It's not far enough. It's not as far as I wanted to be. But man, when somebody else suffers, fails, or stumbles, you're like, oh, thank you. I know that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but I think you know what I'm pressing on here. You consider better about yourself when you consider what is bad happens to someone else. And when self is the focus, envy and jealousy fuel you because selfish ambition is killing you. Therefore, you must compete. Compete. Now, he goes straight from that to a third threat, which is very near to competition, but it has a distinct expression to it. Threat number three is comparison and how you serve God. Not just competition in what you do for God, but comparison in how you serve God. Paul says of the second kind of person, some preach the gospel from goodwill. And they do it out of love. They don't have any ill will towards me. They, they, they're on the same team and, and they know that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. They actually appreciate my ministry even though we're not directly associated with one another. But here's where the threat comes in. It's not so much against Paul, but it is against the one who is being consumed by comparison. You see, this group served in agreement with his work, not alongside him though. And the threat is this, it's the way they see Paul affects the way they see themselves. Paul always has a little more success. He has a little bigger platform, a few more followers, a bigger audience, or, or better results. And here's, here's how demented this gets. Here's how darkened we get in our thinking that people look at the situation that Paul finds himself in and they ask of themselves, why is he always the one to get noticed? Why is he always the one to get arrested? Why don't I ever get arrested? I preach the gospel. Why didn't anybody ever listen to me? I've never been beat for preaching the gospel. Seriously. You see how dark that is? But we don't think about it that way. Because we are so consumed with comparing ourselves, 
with what we think we want or or are supposed to be. It's so twisted, and you know that, but you still feel a certain way about yourself because of it. You don't hate the other person. You don't celebrate their suffering because of this. Often quite the opposite. You often love them greatly, and you, you even admire them. But the problem is you admire them too much. You, you don't loathe, uh, 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 but you, excuse me, you don't hate them, but you do loathe yourself for the way that you see yourself in light of them. And you see, comparison is a killer Because your focus is on how you compare to others instead of your faithfulness to Christ. And you're never satisfied and you only know a joy that is a false joy because you never measure up to you. So how can somebody be so cruel to themselves? Oh friends, sin is nothing but cruel to us. Comparison kills because of what you believe about or how it is you think about yourself. And the infection of comparison will not allow you to enjoy good. Why? Because you don't think you're worthy. You have too much improvement to make. You have too much work to accomplish before you sit down and rest and enjoy anything. But friends, listen, when you stop comparing yourself and you begin to trust in Christ, you are set free to not only enjoy the blessings that come your way, but to enjoy the blessing of others and the benefits that both provide for anyone else. You enjoy their personhood. You enjoy their gifting and their strengths, even though they might be night and day from who you are, completely opposite. But you recognize how their service and your service for the sake of the gospel strengthens the whole. You see, competition and comparison are twin threats that often follow closely together. But they're not something specific only to an individual. You don't struggle with that just because you are who you are. You struggle with that because of the nature who people are. Sinful. It's not just your weakness, it's sin manifesting itself in you and it begins in the mind consumes the heart why because when the sin is ruling mind and heart it can stop you from anything or start something that's not productive and good and healthy for you when you fail to rest in God's love by faith Whether you believe it or not whether you go how much does God love me I can't believe why he would love me so much but he does And so I will rest. But when you fail to rest in God's love, you always live striving to get ahead of others. When you refuse to trust God's grace for, shall I refer back to my original illustration, when you refer to accept God's grace, forgiveness, and cleansing for your own stupidity, no, no, God, I did that one. I was stupid in that one. Listen, you need God's grace not only for sins against you, but sins that are on you. You're always measuring yourself against those you think have it all together. And you hate yourself because you don't have it all together. It doesn't matter how much not together you hear from the others. You just won't hear of it. It's not as bad as you're not together. Here's the real threat though, friends. The real threat of compete and compare is this. In time, you will get so overwhelmed and wearied by loathing and self-hate you will turn to self-protect and you'll begin to blame God for it. The only one who can cleanse you from it 
you'll begin to blame him if you refuse to trust him. You see, competition and comparison are both rooted in self-centeredness. And they're only conquered by repentance and submitting yourself fully to Jesus. To center your life on obedience to him by faith. When your identity rests in Jesus, insecurity, insufficiency, and insignificance die by the forgiveness, by the cleansing, by the hope, and by the joy of the gospel that comes into you. These threats undermine the gospel work in life by sin's constant barrage against the heart, wanting to draw away, to drive away, or to deter from a gospel work taking place in you. But Paul demonstrates that you don't have to give in to him because it was the Lord Jesus who supplied the strength and the power for Paul in the fa- to remain faithful in every circumstance that he endured. And that's what I want you to leave, to leave you with today. There is one power for gospel advance in your life, and it's this, faithful witness. Faithful witness. Against every threat, Paul held a gospel-focused perspective of both how it was God was working in people and how it was the mission of the gospel was advancing through their work. So he continued to preach and to share the gospel so its power would continue to work. You know why Christians ought to share the gospel, especially in the worst of circumstances? Because when you begin to hear yourself say it, it deepens and strengthens its reality and presence in you. When you tell someone else about the goodness of God in the midst of adverse situation and circumstance, you're actually going to begin to deepen and strengthen your own faith in it. You know what? That's right. Oh my goodness. I need to listen to what I'm saying. You've had those moments, right? When you need to take your own counsel. That's what it does, friends. One commentator says this about it. This passage shows that when our joy is connected to advancement of the gospel rather than to our physical condition or to the responses of other people to us, it remains firm even when circumstances stand against us. You see, the power that Paul shared and the power that Paul was serving with his life was the very power that he was living from in his life. And sharing the gospel was the power that advanced the gospel in all circumstances at all times and through all people. He didn't wait for the right time. He made every time about the gospel. And when faced with a threat against the gospel advancing in your life, faithfulness and sharing remains your one command and the only sufficient power to overcome any threat, to focus your perspective and empower your faith. This is why God commands us to share the gospel in the face of adverse circumstances, not because he's got one more task on our action steps that he wants us to check off, but because the power from on high awaits to fill you and to walk you through whatever he has walked you into so you can see your life outside of your situation. You can see your life from an eternal perspective and see how God is bringing eternal glory through the temporary moment of you. And you can say, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that through everything I've gone through, God is advancing the glory of his kingdom by the advancement of the gospel through my life. So whatever comes. He is good. He is good. Sharing the gospel keeps you focused to remain faithful to Jesus in hard circumstances, to remain faithful against attackers and accusers and from any infliction 
of self-focus. Christ followers hold a Jesus-centered perspective on all of life so their whole life can serve to advance the gospel. Let's pray together.